Disrupting Japan, Episode 74. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. One of the things I enjoy most about making Disrupting Japan is not only do I get a chance to sit down and talk with some of the most innovative people in Japan, but I hear from people all over the world who are thinking about bringing their company to Japan or who are deeply involved in the startup scene in their own country or who just have a love of Japan and enjoy hearing about startups and how things are changing here. I also get a pretty steady stream of inquiries from listeners with a very specific Japan-focused dream. There are a lot of developers all over the world who want to move to Japan, maybe work at a Japanese company, study the language, and then start some kind of internet business that would give them the financial independence and the freedom to just live your life in Japan. Well, if that sounds appealing, I've got a treat for you today. Today, we're going to sit down and talk with my friend Patrick McKenzie, and we are basically going to give you a blueprint for doing exactly that. I'll warn you in advance, it might not be as easy as you think it is, or as rewarding as you imagine it might be, and in fact, in the end, Patrick left that life behind. Before he did that, however, he created not just one, but two successful online businesses that he ran from the comfort of the Japanese countryside. Now, you've probably never heard of either of Patrick's companies, but he's a more important part of the Tokyo startup ecosystem than he likes to let on. He's an advisor, a connector, and someone whose name just keeps popping up in Tokyo's startup scene. And he has a really amazing story to tell. So let's hear from our sponsors and get right to the interview. Your journey to success in Japan will involve some twists and turns. In trying to navigate new terrain, planning the safest, most effective way through on your own can be overwhelming. The Carter Group have been using market intelligence and research to guide Japan entrants for decades. They've honed an agile, cost-effective, but consultative approach that will help you find the perfect product market fit, explore user and consumer dynamics, and act as an honest broker to let you know the reputation and track record of potential partners here in Japan. And when you're ready to go, their executive search team can also help you hire the right people to drive your business forward. So if you haven't got Japan completely figured out yet, the Carter Group can help you out. I'm sitting here with Patrick McKenzie of Stripe and of Kazumius Software and the illustrious Kazumius podcast, as a matter of fact. You're really a unique figure in the startup ecosystem in Japan. And you've done something that I think a lot of our listeners dream about doing which is running two companies on your own here, your ideas, your marketing, your coding, and bringing them to fruition. And so thanks for sitting down and talking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tim. Uh, hi ho everybody. I'm Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio11 on the internet. My pro tip for everybody, memorize a self-intro that is one sentence long, and then you can display it on every podcast from now to eternity. Yeah, I don't know if I'm a very important person, but I have a... Uh, Less than common life story, and so people so. apparently like hearing it. Well, it's something that I think should be more common. You did what a lot of people want to do. You became a micro startup. You went from idea to code to product, uh, not once, but twice in Japan. 
In fact, you were living in the countryside while doing it. So literally doing your own business from anywhere. Before we really dig into the mechanics of those companies, let's back up and, and talk about you for a bit. Why Japan? I have an odd answer to this question. I grew up with my father, and every day as our father-son bonding activity, we would read the Wall Street Journal together. And when I was studying engineering in school, the Wall Street Journal was very insistent, this is back in the early 2000s, that all of the engineering jobs were going to India and China. So I was getting a lot of parental pressure. Go get a W-2 job at a nice big megacorp, something which is safe and stable with healthcare. And uh, my inaccurate assessment of the world from my perch in St. Louis at the time was that uh, that basically only existed in the United States at Microsoft. So I wanted to get a job at Microsoft, but I didn't think I was the sharpest knife in the coding drawer. So I thought, well, if I could combine a language that was commercially reasonable for software development with the actual skill of doing software development, then Microsoft would have to give me a job as like the product manager of X country Excel. And if I did that, I would only be competing against not 100,000 people who are graduating in India and China every year, but only the small subsection who had mastered the same language and were also fluent in English. So I asked my university, can you give me a list of every language the university uh, teaches? And went down the list on how many billions of dollars of software does this country make and how many billions of dollars of U.S. software do they buy? And Japan was number one on this by a long shot. So I immediately uh, signed up for Japanese 101. And I think uh, about one hour into learning the Japanese language, I was like, yep, this is clicking with me. I'm totally going to major in this. Uh, So I majored in that and in engineering. And then um, when I graduated, I was like, can I, in conscience, go to Microsoft right now and say, you should make me the product manager of MS Excel Japanese version. I thought, well, I know nothing about anything. And my Japanese is good enough to have a conversation, but probably not good enough to lead a project management meeting. Actually, the idea of combining engineering with another skill is a really good one for for anyone, whatever that other skill or that other passion happens to be. Did you try to market yourself? Did you try to get a job combining those two skills straight out of college, or were you really kind of headed for Japan at this point? Oh, I was terrible at this. Um, uh, I was actually randomly met someone who would be professionally advantageous to know if that was the career path plan. And when he heard engineering degree plus uh, some level of Japanese conversational fluency, he asked me to apply to his company on the understanding that he would immediately be able to say yes to the application. And I heard that and then did not take action on it because I was worried about it being too much Maywaku to send him an email saying, hey, I graduated now. Can I have that job he promised me? When I graduated, I thought uh, my Japanese is not sufficient to run an engineering meeting in Japan right now. So I will go over to Japan after graduation. Uh, work as a translator for a few years to uh, firm up my business Japanese and then come back and get a job at Microsoft was the plan. Okay, well, it seems like being in St. Louis, it would actually be harder to get a job as a translator in Japan than it would be to get a job as a a product manager at a software company in America. Yeah, you would think that, right? Um, I think this is one of the, the many times in life where people don't have a great idea for what is easy and what is hard. They just have an idea for what is like the well-trodden path and what is not the well-trodden path. At Washington University, which is where I was going to school, one well-trodden path was applying to the JET program. There's a A4 uh, sheet of paper that you just uh, put your name on and boom, that uh, takes off. And it's a clear so, path from A to B. Yeah, clear path from A to B. I'm like, oh, I will apply to the clear path from A to B. And... Uh, applied to the JET program. They assigned me as a coordinator for international relations, a prefecturally sponsored technology incubator in Gifu Prefecture. 
if you're not too familiar with the JET program, uh, they do three things. The big one is uh, they send people without much Japan experience or knowledge of the Japanese language to be uh, ALTs, assistant language teachers at Japanese schools, to have a foreigner with native pronunciation of English teach English most typically. And then their other much smaller thing is they uh, place translators and interpreters at a variety of uh, governmental and quasi-governmental organizations. But at this point, your, your Japanese wasn't good enough to be a translator, right? So you were going in as an English teacher? No, no, I actually went in as a, as a technical translator. Oh, wow. Um, whether okay. my ability was sufficient to be a technical translator <laughs> is perhaps up for debate. At the time I landed in Japan, dove in headfirst and, and started doing things. Learned on the job. And uh, yeah, that was jumping off the deep end and hitting every diving board on the way down. But uh, So after coming over <laughs> with the JET program, you decided to stay. You, you got a job. You were a salaryman basically for a while, right? Yep. I worked for three years on the JET program and um, really loved living in Ogaki, the town I was living in, in Gifu, but didn't really see much of a career path uh, along translation slash interpretation for me. And so I, in the the grand tradition of Japanese business deals, I was uh, taken by someone who owed me a favor to one of his clients for what was messaged to me as a job interview. And uh, I had no clue after an hour of talking how I had done at the job interview and said, uh, I said, oh, of course, you had the job before you walked in the door. We're just, you know, we wanted to meet you. How does one get the job before one has the interview? Because Japan, right? (laughs) Right, right. Now, you were there in an engineering role. Yep. I was a uh, engineer first class for three years. Well, Uh, this is this is something I think, particularly for foreign engineers interested in Japan, (laughs) the engineering culture in Japan and in the U.S. is really different. (laughs) And engineers don't have either the level of respect or the career path in Japan that they do in the U.S. And you must have run headfirst into that. Oh, goodness. So about a year into my work with the Japanese company, I was feeling a little frustrated at the amount of impact I had, which, as you might imagine, was very little. Given that I was fairly good at what I do and the company agreed that I was fairly good at what I did, I thought that I was going to be allowed to make decisions that were broader in scope than here is a JIRA ticket, implement the task in the JIRA ticket. Oh, boy. Uh, It wasn't actually JIRA, whatever our ticketing system was at the time. Uh, And my boss sat me down and said, "Uh, I understand your situation is a little unique, but you will be able to make any decision that you want after you are CEO of the American subsidiary at age 54. And (laughs) let's work backwards. You're 24 right now. Here is your 30-year career plan. And he mapped out in three-year increments what would happen over the course of the next 30 years. And to this day, I think he was absolutely sincere and probably accurate in uh, month by month on the precision of that career plan. But it just doesn't make sense relative to the the expectation that one could do a startup and be able to make consequential decisions immediately rather than putting in 10 years of time first. Even if you don't have the bug to make a startup, I think there's something somewhat terrifying about having the next 25 years of your life mapped out for you like that. Yeah. It's also weird to have it be invariant among people regardless of what their personal goals are or their bluntly level of capability is or uh, after you've been... it's been announced to you that you have a 30-year career plan at one company. Your optionality in terms of walking less traveled paths in your own life goes much lower. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of folks who, who benefit from uh, trying a few things out in, say, their early 20s before settling on a path that makes a little more sense to them. Well, I, th- I think the bulk of humanity would benefit from that. Yep. That natural progression is not something that the mainline Japanese companies really encourage. Well, how did your, your Japanese coworkers? do in this environment? Were, were most of the Japanese engineers you worked with 
happy to have this 20-year career path mapped out for them? Or were a lot of your coworkers kind of quietly feeling the same things you were? I think that was different for different people. Um, some folks very much responded well to the salaryman culture. Two of the most talented engineers I've ever met in my life uh, worked at that company. I often get asked on the general level of engineering talent in Japan, and much like in the United States, it's all over the map. Uh, so these two gentlemen I would stake against literally anyone in the Googleplex, and then of the remaining 80 engineers in the company, I do not have wonderful things to say with regards to web application development. Uh, one of those two engineers wanted to create a business on the side, much like I, I did, was doing it roughly the same time, mostly to get technical challenge that he wasn't allowed to undertake at a systems integrator. He coded, coded up basically the GitHub of Subversion and got it to the point where it was ready to deploy on the next day and then had a frank conversation with his wife on what the consequences of were, would be of deploying that as an uh, employee at a Japanese organization. And he came into work the next day and told me that he had made the decision to not move forward with the project and had deleted all evidence of it ever existing. Oh, my God. And So his wife just basically said, look, You've got a good thing going. Don't don't mess it up with your crazy dreams right. type of a talk. Basically that kind of talk with a little bit of uh, you know, what if someone at work discovers this? How would they feel about it? So you were in a job you felt wasn't particularly challenging for you technically or creatively. Mm -hmm. Well, you started both bingo card creator and appointments reminder during your time in Gifu. Mm -hmm. Why did you pick these two particular niches. I mean, it, it seems sort of random, but I know there's some, some method to this madness. So uh, More madness in the method than uh, most people give me credit for. But I'd always been scheming and dreaming when I was growing up and had a, a lot of side projects that never saw the light of day. You, you get into a new project, everything is, uh, uh, everything is new and fun, and writing out designs is very easy, and uh, drawing up wireframes, etc., then you actually get to the nitty-gritty of having to build something and get it out into the market. And uh, one's desire tends to flag in the, in the harsh light of having to actually do the real work. Oh, yeah. Having experienced the fit and start thing for many, many years of my life, I thought, okay, this is going to be the year that I actually ship something. And the only thing that will um, let me successfully ship something as opposed to having another project go into the dustbin is to have such a radically confined scope that it would be easier to ship it than to not ship it. Uh, and so I picked uh, Bingo Card Creator, which one of my friends describes as Hello World attached to a random number generator. <laughs> and the reason why I picked Bingo Cards out of all the problems in the world was as simple as uh, someone asked on the prefectural self-help group for foreigners living in the prefecture, how does one make bingo cards for class? I want to play elementary school English bingo on, on Friday. There's something and, you said uh, for solving the problems in front of you. Yep. And I thought... Okay, my engineering estimate is that will take approximately one day of work and put it up and start taking money via uh, PayPal and whatever. Okay. You delivered it to your first customer. Mm -hmm. That's the easy one. Over time, though, most of your customers were, were not in Japan. Mm -hmm. They were overseas. Yep. And that's, that's true for both of your companies. So mm -hmm. did you try to market to the Japanese and just there was more interest overseas? There's a two-part version for this. Well, I was still employed at the day job. Folks working overseas might not realize this, but in Japan, one's, uh, if one works for a company, one's tax return is done for you by the company. And so I asked my company what the consequences were for the tax return of me running a side business. And they asked me, um, 
we don't know what the consequences are, and looping in our accounting seems to be a whole lot of pain. So if you can agree never to sell anything in Japan, we won't have any tax consequences, or so we believe, and you deal with the IRS like you do every year. So I intentionally did not uh, market bingo card creator in Japan until after I had left. And then after I had left the day job, and was I pretty rapidly came to the conclusion that more work put into SEO or in AdWords or in blogging, et cetera, had a very clear path to high ROI versus uh, the speculative work of uh, localizing bingo card creator into Japanese and then having to sell it into the Japanese market. With appointment reminder, was it the same process? Did one person ask you for it and you decided you could sell it many times? I definitely went about getting the idea for appointment reminder the wrong way. Uh, Twilio came out and uh, Twilio is an API that allows one to make phone calls and SMS messages. And I played around with it after it uh, showed up on Hacker News. I thought, this is the most amazing technology I've touched in my career. There must be businesses that can be built on top of this. I want to make one. And I had a notebook full of ideas for I listed every kind of repetitive phone call that I could conceive of a business making and was trying to think, okay, which is the one I'm going to actually build a product around? So you, re you really had a solution looking for a problem, yep. quite literally. Yep. And uh, the one which got the nod was appointment reminders because I went in to a local massage therapist in Ogaki one day, went out to the massage therapist and just walked in without an appointment and asked if I could uh, have one. And they said it would be an hour and a half wait. I said, I've got a Kindle, that's no problem and uh, began to sat down for an hour and a half. And then not 10 minutes later, she came back and said, actually, she could see me, but it would have to be right now. And she said she had had no show for the one o'clock appointment. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I'm thinking appointment reminders are one of those idea things in my notebook. I might as well ask. I said, do you call people before they come in for their appointment? And she said a very consequential line. I'm a massage therapist. If my hands are on a telephone, they're not on someone's back. And if they're not on someone's back, I'm not getting paid. I don't make phone calls. I thought, ooh. It's a very interesting thing to this hear. Sounds promising. Uh, a few weeks later, when I flew back to Chicago to see my family, I went to Bank of America ATM, took out $400, and walked down the, uh, the Gold Coast in Chicago, which is one of the nicer sections of town. And it has lots of high-end salons and uh, massage therapy places, etc. I would just walk into all of them, ask to see the proprietor, ask to pay for the 30-minute whatever it was, and then say, okay, switcheroo, I'll still pay you for the 30 minutes, but I actually just want to talk about the business aspects of running a massage therapy uh, practice. Tell me about your appointment practices, yada, yada, yada. And after doing that for uh, a couple hours, I felt pretty confident that appointment reminder was something I could sell. So then I actually went around and built it. Oh, I had a, had a little one-page mocked-up demo that I could access on my iPad to show them, which would uh, fake everything except the phone call, basically. Okay. So you went back to Japan, mm -hmm. you, you built it, you supported it. Mm -hmm. um, most of the selling on, for both products was online SEO. Mm -hmm. So in the idealized version of this, you're working four hours a week or something and the money's just coming in. Mm -hmm. How far from reality is that? How much time were you spending supporting customers and, and dealing with the business? So Bingo Card Creator was basically built to be a business that I could run in five hours a week because I was a Japanese salaryman when making it and didn't have more than five hours a week to spare. Uh, that was largely accurate. And I considered coasting on, uh, on the success of that model for virtually indefinitely after I quit. Uh, I was very burnt out from being a salaryman. Right. Um, kind of felt like I never want to work another day in my life if I can avoid it. I'll give Joel Spolsky credit for talking me to my senses. Um, basically, he said, we had a conversation one day, and he said, uh, people who are given certain abilities uh, owe it to the world to 
make the best use of those abilities on behalf of the rest of the folks. And I uh, buckled down to a point room rider and uh, shipped it about uh, two months later after that conversation. Uh, how much I actually worked over the course of the next couple of years fluctuated with how interested I was in appointment reminder. Um, one of the great problems to that business was that uh, after I had grown one business to several thousand customers and hundreds of thousands of uniques, et cetera, that wasn't a new challenge for me anymore. And every time I looked at doing it for appointment reminder, I found other important things that needed to be done, like uh, you know, tax filing or literally anything other than network. At some point, did it hit the stage where you knew you could grow the business large enough that you wanted to bring on other people to handle these taxes and administration? Or did you think about turning it into a scalable company instead of a one-man show? I planned very early in the life of a reminder. I'm just going to, to do this for a little while, figure out what the dynamics of the business look like, and then make a a case for getting investment. More than a few folks in my extended social circle were saying, look at these idiots out in Silicon Valley getting you know, money for Uber for dogs. Clearly you can, you can do better than that. Yeah, if you, if you spend was, too much time reading Hacker News or TechCrunch, you get a little distorted idea of, of how the world and how finance works. Yep, I'm glad I didn't en- end up actually pulling the trigger on radius, raising a seed round for a point reminder. It would have worked. Um, the business fundamentally worked. It made profits for about five years before I sold it. Why, why are you glad you didn't go down that route? Um, it seems I, like a good solid business. It is definitely a solid business, which I didn't enjoy running that much. And I think that uh, partly out of a degree of professional concern for my investors, I would have uh, thrown myself into it much, much more than I did uh, over the course of the five years where I was running it, um, which possibly would have been a successful outcome to investors, but definitely wouldn't have been a very uh, happy outcome for me, even though it probably would have made more money. Were, were you just concerned about going back to the almost salary man life again, being yeah. kind of confined into what you could do? Being confined into what I could do, losing optionality to try other things that appealed to me, but I have very few regrets over how it shook out. So it sounds like you were in a really good place. You had two successful products that was providing you the kind of lifestyle you wanted. Mm-hmm. You had the option of, if you wanted to increase your income, either producing new products mm-hmm. or, as you mentioned, getting investment and growing one of the the existing ones. Mm -hmm. Just to give folks a little bit of perspective if you're not familiar with the story, um, my uh, sales back in the day 2011 to 2015-ish time frame were in the low six digits every year. So for a sustainable for a one-person show, could have done that indefinitely. Yeah. Um, And then the question is, why did I not do that indefinitely, right? So um, sheer boredom, one big reason. Uh, The other being that overpowering sense that I was not put on earth to optimize the uh, schedules for dentist offices. Um, <laughs> okay. And not to knock it at all. Like there's a lot of little businesses in the world that, that do their one thing and then you go home at five and that, that's it. And that is fine. And those are wonderful things to have in the world. I won't look down at anybody's like local bookkeeping firm. But um, I felt the need for new challenges and ability to make a more positive impact than just literally managing the schedule for 200 dentist offices. Well, did you think about bringing in other people to manage the business and do the parts you didn't enjoy? Um, I did. Uh, so I want to say late 2014, I brought in an employee to, um, well, contractor technically, uh, to appointment reminder with the goal of first outsourcing customer support and uh, also developing a scalable sales process for it and having her doing, do most of the execution on that. 
and that worked reasonably well. Well, she worked for me for, I want to say, a year and a half before finding a better offer, and then a uh, person did uh, substantially the same duties for approximately six months before I sold the business. At this point, you had appointment reminder running, I don't want to say on autopilot, but without a lot of your hands-on anymore, right? Right. So it was something that was wrapped up and, and relatively easy to sell. Yep. It turns out that uh, people who want to buy software businesses often aren't buying uh, because they want to execute on them uh, full-time or full-time plus-plus that a lot of software entrepreneurs execute at. Uh, many of them are buying them for reasons similar to uh, reasons why someone might buy an apartment building or buy a subway franchise. So if you happen to have an existing business where uh, the tech is done, there is an existing sales process, there is a team in place to execute on the existing sales process, uh, and they can just pay for cash flow. Yep, they want to pay for cash flow and maybe pay for some potential for upside. Um, uh, the, I want to say the day after my broker listed it, we had four bids come in, three of them at the asking price. Many of the folks that I know in the software industry are surprised that there's so much liquidity for uh, acquisitions on a smaller scale like this. Is this something, or you think you might do it again? Are you sort of done with that life? I think I'm certainly going to run a business again. I don't exactly know at this point in my life whether I will do a uh, business on a smaller scale that would uh, support myself and my family and that much more, or um, go for uh, the full startup rigmarole again and try to get on the VC-funded rocket ship. I ran two businesses that were no great shakes, um, but the thing that I've enjoyed most professionally over the last couple of years is blogging, speaking to other entrepreneurs in the community, etc. And people seem to think that I actually know what I'm talking about, which is a little terrifying. <laughs> but um, I know that uh, my biggest impact on the industry was not actually the things that I shipped for money, but was advice that I gave to other people um, that they employed in their careers or in their startups. Or, well, I, I and there's a couple that. of um, big unanswered problems in the software industry, like how we hire is done terribly, or uh, how we support companies in their, in their very early days is... Uh, is something that the industry doesn't really have an answer for right now. And I thought, I'd like to work on one of those you know, big systemic problems and be able to look back at my career and say, hey, I moved the needle on that, rather than, yep, I created the minimum viable software vending machine that to spit out $250,000 a year and then uh, coast off into the sunset. Well, I think a lot of people are very interested in having a, a lifestyle business. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's it's... The ideal is having a couple of small projects that they've coded and they're running and and are financing their lifestyle, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps because they haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. As someone who has done it, what advice would you give people who are starting down that path or thinking about starting down that path? For folks who are still in the scheming and dreaming phase, uh, the number one failure mode is just not shipping anything. Um, You can read every blog post ever written about market validation, but if you don't actually get out there and talk to customers, you will never sell a single dollar worth of product. So spend less time consuming and more time producing, whether that's uh, producing a product for sale or producing indicia of external demand, which you quickly transform into an actual product that you ship to customers. Like you mentioned, in both cases, even if they weren't a world-changing product, in both cases, you had an existing user before you started coding. Mm -hmm. So you you were solving a real problem. Yep. I think people tell a great lip service about that whole customer validation thing, but it's it's very easy to say you're doing it and not actually do it. And I say this as an introverted engineer myself. It's seductive to just fall into the code cave for six months and build something wonderful and then feel uh, feel like if the world doesn't beat a path to your door, then that's the world's problem. But yeah. this is the 
you know, the... Well, there is tremendous joy in just creating something mm -hmm. that is is beautiful and has some kind of intrinsic value, some mm -hmm. intrinsic function. I mean, yep. that, that in itself is rewarding, although perhaps not financially. Yeah, I think uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with creating just for the sense of creating. But if you want to have a business and charge people money and uh, be afforded the, the luxury that charging money gets you, which is the ability to do it full-time, uh, then um, you're ultimately going to have to make some hard-nosed business decisions like, is there a market for this thing? Can I charge that market appropriately? I absolutely don't want to discourage anyone from hacking on something just because they get the itch, but um, uh, for the things where you're going to be you know, gambling your family's ability to make rent, do the customer validation, have a customer before you write one line of code, um, ideally have commitment and principle from someone that they will pay you a meaningful amount of money before you write one line of code. That's something that I wouldn't have agreed with when I started, by the way. I thought that it was you know, borderline fraudulent to ask someone for money before you had actually written something. And I was worried about even suggesting the availability in the future of uh, something when I was uh, oh, no. doing yeah, customer... You get very different responses when you ask if someone would pay for something than when you ask if they will pay for something. Yep, exactly. I think a lot of engineers say there's the word vaporware and we're so overly conditioned to avoid it that uh, you would not want to sell any product that's less than perfect. And then the quote unquote business guy is totally willing to sell something on the basis of a you know one hour long conversation over coffee and then a one page LOI. And uh, I think engineers who aspire to be entrepreneurs should get comfortable with the notion of drawing out what someone's pain points are and what, uh, what about their business is dissatisfactory to them and saying, okay, if we can imagine a world where I solve that, is that worth a certain amount of money? And then if, it, if and only if it is, then work down the path of uh, fixing that. If you can't convince a customer to say, okay, in the hypothetical world where I solve this, is that worth $1,000 to you? Then what is actually solving the thing going to get you that you don't already have? Well, I, I think you've hit on something really important, and that is if someone wants to be a one-man show, mm -hmm. and that's fantastic if they do, they have to wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. They have to get out of the comfort zone and they have to be able to push prospects a little bit to get them to commit. Yep. They have to be able to back off and be empathetic when you're wearing your support hat. Mm -hmm. For the rest of the time, I mean, most of the people who want to do this, they know how to code already. Mm -hmm. You have to push yourself to do the things you don't want to do. Right. If you feel most self-actualized when coding and building things and you think, I want to get paid just for building, then what you really want is to be an employee. And, and that sounds a little harsh, but that's true. If you want to run a software business, coding becomes somewhere between 10 and 20% of the job. And then the remainder is marketing, it's sales, it's going down to the tax office and finding out what an Alviodo Shinkoku is and how to actually uh, you know, file one of those without getting jailed. It's dealing with things like compliance. It's I think that's an incredibly important insight. If you're only spending 10 to 20% doing the coding, mm -hmm. which is what most people with this stream love doing, mm -hmm. yeah, that's something you maybe you want to take a, a second look at whether this is the right lifestyle. Yep. I'd say there's a spectrum among my friends who run product businesses over the internet on how much they engage with the business side of the business versus um, just on the producing things. But um, just being 100% focused on producing things is probably not viable. Yeah. If, if you really love producing things, you either need to be an employee or find co-founders yep. who love doing the selling or love doing the support. Mm -hmm. Recently, I don't, I don't know if it's recently, but I've noticed over the last 
10 years or so, there seems to be an increasing level of interest in Japan among engineers in the US and Europe. Mm -hmm. Is this something you've noticed as well? Uh, if you look at uh, US engineers of, say, my generation and 10 years younger, uh, there is more of a cultural affinity for things made in Japan than there is for things made in France or in Italy, largely through things that are geeky in nature, so anime, manga, Japanese video games, etc. What advice do you have for Western engineers who are thinking of coming to Japan? either with the same dream of having a lifestyle where they're running side projects here or just coming to be in Japan and work at startups here? I have a bit of advice, which I need to say because it's useful, but which will be received by many people who hear it as a bit of a bummer. Um, but I feel like the need to say it anyhow. It's often the best type of advice. If you want to work in Japan in a professionally focused role, you owe it to yourself and to everyone who deals with you professionally to learn the Japanese language very well. And learning the Japanese language very well is a long commitment. I probably studied full-time for four to six years before I would have been capable of having a conversation like this one. There's a lot of folks who, I don't want to stereotype here, but to stereotype, um, love Japan because like they watched the entire arc of Kenshin and uh, think that, oh, I'll just go and work at a Japanese company to uh, uh, to live in the land of Kenshin while doing my day job. And uh, you'll find that the vast majority of Japanese companies aren't really set up to metabolize someone who is not capable of working in a Japanese environment. You think a lot of people have kind of unrealistic expectations? Yeah. Also, just uh, operationally speaking, living in Japan, if you don't speak the language, uh, must be difficult. A lot of folks who come to Tokyo and the expectation that they can make that work kind of get sidetracked into the expatriate community and end up having... It is a difficult language to learn, mm -hmm. even if you're committed to it and now maybe it's different if you can afford to, to study full-time but mm -hmm. if you're committed to it and studying it in your in your off hours I mean you're looking at a, a few years before you can get around and have normal conversations with you know that isn't even in the bar if you're running a business if you aspire to live in the Japanese countryside uh, there will be a day when you have to go to the local tax office and ask them about how does one account for depreciation on an intellectual property asset? <laughs> and uh, those are not fun conversations to have if you don't uh, I, I feel I still have problems with those kind of conversations. Yeah. Uh, Japan is getting better about accommodating people who don't speak Japanese, but slowly and not at a pace that is professionally relevant for folks who want to, say, found a business here. So make, like, sure, make sure they make understand. Make sure you know what you're getting into. Yeah, what they're really getting into. And make a commitment. <laughs> you know, that, that, that is something that seems to keep coming up, being committed to the country either as an individual learning the language or as a foreign company coming into Japan, hiring local staff and setting up an office. Japanese, both citizens and corporations, are extremely sensitive to and supportive of the level of commitment you're willing to make to the country. Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, true in Japan. Uh, this is one of the actual advantages of being a foreigner in Japan. If you have Japanese that is at a certain level, you've just the fact of being able to speak Japanese at that level is a kind of costly demonstration of commitment. Absolutely. It's also a costly demonstration of competence where you know, much of what startups deal with in hiring is trying to, trying to figure out, okay, of 100 applicants who applied for a job, who will actually be good at doing the work and who will be able to do arbitrary hard things when we throw arbitrary hard things at them. If in your first conversation it comes up, oh yeah, I'm, you know, achieved a decent level of proficiency in the Japanese language, you already have a gold star next to your name in terms of the <laughs> can deal with arbitrary hard things department. <laughs>
I would not have credited this as being true when I was younger, but I've credited it as being true now. There's not enough people in the world who are able to go after a goal over a multi-year time horizon and get through little silly things that get in the way of getting the goal. That is a useful skill to develop in life, whether it's studying Japanese or building businesses or any other worthwhile thing you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. What do you see as the biggest weakness for Japanese startups right now and what do you think is really going right here? I think this is inevitably going to be a comparative answer. Um, the Jap- Japanese startup scene is quantitatively and qualitatively uh, much, much weaker than, say, the Silicon Valley startup scene. Oh, sure. And what's different about them? One of the salient differences is that uh, there's generations of startups, and then each generation begets the next generation. The folks who you know, were involved in PayPal, for example, are now running venture capital firms. They developed operational experience that they developed their own personal networks, and they were able to leverage those for the next few things that they did. Because the Japanese startup ecosystem is far less mature, it's been through a lower absolute number of generations. And because the impacts of each startup that succeeds in Japan are generally concentrated into fewer hands and in less widespread networks, Mm. the ambient level of every useful thing in the Japanese ecosystem is unfortunately far lower than it is in Silicon Valley for a while. If you were looking for a CTO who has been there, done that, and scaled the company from their first server, which he wasn't afraid to get his hands uh, dirty on through you know, having a fleet of 1,000 and an engineering team of 120 people. You could count maybe those people on one or two hands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and there's a million things like that. Like, At the moment, it's a very shallow well here in Japan. Right, a very shallow well. Um, also, what startups really need to do is to uh, take a chance on some people who aren't proven yet, but seem to be high ability and then throw them uh, uh, arbitrary challenges and see how that works out. And that goes very against the grain of Japanese hiring practices and management cultures. Oh, yeah. And that is, unfortunately, a little bit of an impedance mismatch. Well, one thing I have noticed among Japanese startups, Japanese startups that are a founding team are much more often friends from university or even high school. And maybe it's just that's how the Japanese are mapping the change from the current structure, which is entirely credential and experience-based, to we have to figure this out. Who can I trust to throw against this problem and know they'll try their best? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, in Japan, if you get into a big-name company, you hold on to that job for dear life. And then in the United States, uh, it's perfectly acceptable in the tech industry to put in three years at Google, make a little bit of money, and then decide. Well, I think the big difference is in the U.S., you can decide it's time for a change, and then you can go back into the big yep. corporate world. In Japan, it's very much a one-way trip. Right. You, uh, you get your one shot at the brass ring of salamandum, and if you ever give it up, you, will, you may get hired as like subcontractor on a short-term project again by the big guys, but you're probably never going to to get back on the equivalent path of a a lifer. Right, you'll you'll never get back on a career path. Yep. Uh, The flip side of that is one of the advantages that Japanese startups have. Um, And if you look for folks who are excluded out of the salary man lifer, um, you can find folks who are very, very competent and very, very good at what they do and itching for, for someone to give them the ability to do something meaningful and find them at prices which in the United States would be absolutely scandalous. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true across the board in Japan, whether you're looking at sales staff, whether you're looking at engineers or support staff. Yeah, very much true. Yep. I think that's um, one of the reasons why I'm bullish on 
uh, the Japanese st startup ecosystem long term. I mean, I think so too. There, there's there's far more raw talent out there than has been absorbed by the existing startups. Yep. With that in mind, and before we wrap up, so I want to ask you my magic wand question, and that's if I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, to make it better for startups here, what would you change? If I wave my ma magic wand, then we change our definition of success or high-functioning individuals such that one can have some small number of professional failures in one life and still stay within the circle of successful high-functioning individuals. So you mean just change the attitude towards failure or something broader than that? Right. I think um, it's often described as, uh, as risk tolerance. I don't think that's quite the right diagnosis. I think that it's just that people have a rationally calibrated risk tolerance given that the consequences of being personally identified with failure here are absolutely catastrophic. You are not allowed any screw-ups, basically. Right. So the, the easier thing than just saying, well, allow screw-ups, is to just decrease the cost, the cost of screwing up, make it less than totally ruined for the rest of your life. Oh, okay. So it's okay to keep the same risk aversion. Mm -hmm. It's just people shouldn't have to wear it like an albatross around their necks for the rest of their lives. Yep. It's just part of life. Right. And I think um, if that were widely accepted as being true in Japan, the degree to which we see pathological levels of risk aversion would go down by a lot. If folks could just say, you know, a startup is just something, you know, it's a phase that I'm going through for a year or two to see if it works. And then if not, then... I want to experiment. Yeah, I want to experiment with something and then I'll move on to get a job at Mitsubishi or I could go get a job at Google or I could, you know, try another one. Um, then f there would be far more people willing to take a go of it and far more startups that would try to do bigger, more ambitious things than Japanese startups typically tend to do. Do you see any motion in that direction? Measured on the scale of, like, the decade plus I've been here, yes, but but measured over a very long time horizon. So we're still babies. We're, we're making sustained progress slowly. Um, my accountant uh, had the brass ring, was working as an accountant at a, uh, at a large firm and quit at age 25. And uh, three months later, he had his own accountancy. And now a couple of years after that, he runs a accountancy with 80 people working for him uh, that has household name Japanese companies as clients. If you had asked me you know, in 2004, in 2016, do you think any reject of a big firm uh, who will be able to start his own firm and get you know, top 10 accounts uh, to work with them? I would say, oh, you're, you're crazy dreaming. Uh, but he actually, you know, he put that together and works and has uh, uh, made a wonderful business for himself and his 80 employees. So it is, um, it is happening. We've got, happening. We've got some real-world case studies. But there, there are people who are making it work every day in Tokyo and every day you know, across the country. And I hope that uh, they will continue deploying the knowledge of what works and the narratives of what works for the benefit of the, the wider society here. And I hope so, too. System. Hey, well, listen, Patrick. Thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity. If you're a startup thinking about Japan, you'll never really understand the opportunities here until you start to take a serious look at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Osaka in particular deserves your attention, and this is especially true if you and your team are involved in smart cities technologies. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 project is Osaka's Startup Central, and it's a great place for you to get started. 
They offer co-working space, bilingual business support, venture investment, and they're at the center of a great international startup and mentor community. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 in Osaka really deserves your attention. So pay him a visit at www.gvh-5.com en. You'll be glad you did. And we're back. You know, one of the things that had the biggest impact on me during our talk was how Patrick explained his career path during his salaryman days. I've never experienced it personally, but it's not at all unusual for companies to plan out the entire 40-year careers of their new hires in a quarter-by-quarter detail. The whole idea of having my life mapped out like that would horrify me. But that's just me. Well, and Patrick. And actually a lot of other people too, I suppose. No, no. My point here is that this kind of thinking is one of the things that's holding Japan back. You can't plan 20 years ahead or make plans that you begin executing on in 10 years. It's crazy. The world is simply changing too fast, and companies that are not able to think more flexibly and change course when needed not only won't innovate, but won't survive. And I think we're going to see a lot of mid-sized enterprises go out of business as less and less government money is available to prop them up here in Japan. And you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about it much on the show, but Patrick runs the Kazumius podcast, and it's really worth a listen, when he bothers to put it out. The link is up on the site, and you should really check it out, and also harass Patrick into producing more than just two or three episodes a year. Anyway, I found it particularly interesting that even though his base of operations, his inspiration, and his initial users were all in Japan, Patrick marketed in English to a global audience rather than selling to the Japanese. Overall, though, Patrick gave so much practical advice on building and running your own micro-startup, and even though he eventually left that life behind, I know that lifestyle is a dream for many, and hopefully you've got a better idea of what it's really like now. Okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Listener Mail. Kotowork is doing something pretty cool. It's a community of Japanese language students who want to work at Japanese companies with global ambitions. Kotowork also trains them in business culture, Japanese hospitality, and a bit of global marketing. And since it's a real community, Kotowork is always there for both candidates and companies to solve cultural misunderstandings and the hundreds of other little problems that can come up when foreigners work for a Japanese company. Kotowork has a wonderful, long-term, community-based approach to making sure everything runs smoothly, and you should really check them out at kotowork.jp. Okay, let's see what we have here. TJ from New Zealand writes, I love the website and the podcast. Keep up the good work. I was wondering if there's much demand in the Japanese startup scene for engineers with more of a hardware focus than software. From the look of the job sites like Justa, it's almost exclusively software-based. I'm an engineer with a few years of experience working development of embedded systems and sensor design. I'm currently working on a master's degree, and I've been toying with the idea of moving to Japan once I'm done. Any insight into the hardware development scene in Japan would be greatly appreciated. TJ. 
Well, TJ, um, I've got some, some good and some bad news for you. The good news is there are a lot of hardware jobs here in Japan. Um, there's tremendous innovation going on in the IoT space here. However, and I think this is what you're running up against, the competition is much harder for hardware jobs than it is for software spots. Japan has a long history of world-leading hardware development, and there's a lot of guys with decades of experience. So those spots tend to be a bit more competitive than the software development spots. If you speak Japanese and you're a talented hardware engineer, you'll find a lot of companies to be very welcoming. Uh, if you don't speak the language, it's going to be a bit harder. Many companies are willing to hire software developers that don't speak Japanese, but it's much rarer to see this on the hardware side. Anyway, TJ, don't lose hope. There's plenty of startups that are hiring, and the best way to land one of those jobs, other than sites like Justa, is to come here and network. So uh, I hope to see you in Tokyo sometime soon. Now, if you've ever wanted to start your own one-man business, Patrick and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 074. And when you come by, you'll find all the links and sites that Patrick and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.